Welcome to AMDA On The Go, your gateway to expert discussions, journal article reviews, and innovations in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA On The Go is a presentation of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now, here's our host for AMDA on the go, Dr. Diane Sanders Cepeda. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Diane Sanders Cepeda. Thank you for joining us. Really looking forward to our session today on the current landscape of assisted living. I am joined today um, with two of our our committee members for the assisted living committee with the Society uh, for Post-Acute Long-Term Care, Drs. Mike Nash and Dr. Katie O'Brien. Mike and Katie, if you would um, take this time to introduce yourselves. Yeah, thanks, Diane. My name's Mike Nash, and I'm the vice chair of the AMDA Assisted Living Committee. I've been on the committee for a couple of years now. have a lot of interest in assisted livings. Currently, I'm the post-acute medical director for BJC Medical Group, which is based out of St. Louis, Missouri, in the St. Louis metro area. And I've been practicing in assisted livings for almost 15 years now. Currently, I'm a medical director a couple of assisted livings in the St. Louis area and also help lead a group of clinicians that practice in post-acute long-term care and assisted living in the St. Louis area. Thank you, Katie. Hi, thanks. Um, I am Dr. Katie O'Brien. I am a geriatrician and a palliative medicine physician. I um, currently work at Washington University School of Medicine, also in St. Louis. Um, I have spent probably the last seven or so years working in post-acute and long-term care with a heavy em emphasis in assisted living, um, leading um, a home-based primary care practice up in Chicago, which is what I was doing before I came to St. Louis. So I'm really excited to talk about this topic today. I'm I'm very grateful to both of you for being here. I think we could probably talk all day and night about assisted living and how they are different than our post-acute long-term care facilities. So I, I want to just dive in and we we are really trying to understand the current landscape of assisted livings and why it's that's so important. So maybe we could start by just talking through some basic demographics of assisted living. Um, Mike, I, I, I want to hear from you about what the population looks like today and um, why this is so important to the society of, of post-acute long-term care as a whole. Yeah, thanks, Diane. I think Having a podcast about assisted living is pretty timely right now because really within the last year or two, um, there's more seniors in America living in assisted living settings than in kind of the traditional long-term care nursing home. I think the uh, population in assisted livings uh, either will or, or is going to exceed uh, a million in the near future. And I think it's just going to kind of keep on that trajectory where more and more patients are going to be in what's considered an assisted living setting rather than your 
kind of traditional custodial long-term care nursing facility type setting. Currently, from from uh, what we know, more than half of the residents living in assisted livings are are 85 years or older. So they're definitely kind of on the um, the more uh, senior side of the of the population. And uh, I think there's some some interesting trends with the complexity of patients that are living in assisted living. Um, there's more than half of them have some sort of a chronic disease like hypertension, um, arthritis, heart disease. And uh, also interestingly, um, you know, at, at least 40% of patients in assisted living have diagnosis of dementia um, and over 70% have kind of some form of cognitive impairment, mild or early type cognitive impairment. So that kind of paints a picture, I think, of um, of kind of the the typical patient and typical medical complexity in in the uh, assisted livings. And Katie, where you're at is that um, similar to what you're seeing? Yes, definitely. I think the uh, population has absolutely become increasingly more complex, and having worked in kind of multiple areas across the post-acute long-term care continuum, I'd say some of the most challenging patients I've taken care of have been in assisted living settings. So um, that sounds sounds like what I've experienced as well. So I am very curious um, about what a typical AL building may look like, what that typical experience is. Can each of you share and highlight what that really means? for what we were thinking about assisted living. Well, one thing, Diane, that I tell people a lot about assisted living is is there there really is no typical building in assisted living. Um, I kind of consider it almost the wild west of, of senior care because there's so many different, uh, different types of, of facilities out there. Um, there can be assisted livings with as few as four patients and then I think some of us are familiar with buildings that have uh, 400 plus residents that are considered in assisted livings. Um, some of them are freestanding assisted livings, meaning that they they only have AL patients there. Some are part of what's called a CCRC or continuing care retirement community where there's independent living and also skilled nursing and even long-term care patients on the same campus. Uh, some of them have uh, memory care offerings Really, the assisted living concept uh, developed out of the hospitality industry. So a lot of assisted livings initially were kind of focused around having beautiful buildings, uh, lots of activities, um, really good food, those sorts of things. But I think as the population has has become more elderly and more complex at the assisted livings, we're starting to see, uh, you know, different different models of care kind of emerging from that. So the the whole going into this building, seeing the beautiful chandelier, the dining room, and having all the activities, that's changing quite a bit? I think I would say that the, the hospitality aspect is still there, but there's kind of becoming more emphasis on what kind of support we can give to the patients, not only clinically and medically, but with some of their activities of daily living and uh, and other aspects of their life. If there's that much variability, how, what are the criteria for assisted living? 
how does it compare to um, the post-acute long-term care facility uh, and and other levels of senior care? I can talk about this a little bit. Um, I think that's another hard part of working in assisted living and trying to help counsel patients about these facilities. Because I would say that um, there's some vague criteria that sometimes get thrown around. So a lot of places um, kind of talk about, you know, two ADLs, activities of daily living or less um, that somebody needs assistance with to kind of um, make sense to be in assisted living. Um, but even that, I think, can be varied based on the level of support and all the additional things that many of these places um, offer residents. Um, so I'd say even that can vary from assisted living to assisted living. So I'm curious, when we, if 40% of um, the population in assisted living has dementia, what is what are, what is the memory care unit look like um, in today's world? That's a great question, Diane, because we're we're seeing you know more and more memory care units popping up in assisted livings. We we do see some assisted livings that have um, kind of a separate memory care unit um, that some patients move in directly to that unit, or sometimes they transition to that unit from the assisted living if if they kind of reach a point where there's concern about them, um, you know, wandering or, or not being able to uh, do as many of their activities of daily living as they were once able to. Um, and then some assisted livings actually are strictly memory care and they kind of cater to, to memory patients. I think so, sometimes we kind of, I think incorrectly think that the, the only thing that makes a memory care is you know, whether you're, you're able to kind of make sure the patients are safe and not, not wandering. And we think of these, you know, units that have codes on the doors and things like that. And I think that's a part of it, but I think one of the, the big pushes that, um, memory care assisted livings are, are really trying to embrace is, is kind of programming, um, and even just the general environment, um, for memory care patients. So what we're seeing is, um, kind of an emphasis on activities and structure and patients kind of helping with meal preparation in some cases, um, and also just right down to, to the environment, um, you know, the carpeting, the doors, the, the furniture, and then, you know, making it so that they can kind of, you know, lead meaningful lives despite their advancing dementia. One of the things that we do see with patients who are in the memory care setting is that they may not have a lot of chronic debilitating medical issues. They can walk around fairly well. They, some of them don't even need assistive devices, but it's their cognition that's kind of their limiting factor and what's causing them to need help with activities of daily living. So I think once again, the, your typical memory unit isn't what you might've thought about 10 or 15 years ago. It's really trying to put an emphasis on that, uh, you know, daily life and quality of life for, for the dementia patients. So I want to go back to something, Katie, that you were talking about, about the two or less ADLs. In thinking about, you know, we may have people with dementia um, walking around in the memory care unit. We we have more chronic conditions and complexities. What what does the nursing support model look like for an assisted living? Yeah, I think, I mean, the level of assisted li- 
uh, or excuse me, of nursing support that I've seen. <laughs> also, I think this is going to be a theme of today is very variable, right? I mean, some places um, that I've been have a, you know, director of nursing who's on site, available during the day, available at night to staff. And um, some places that I've worked, that's been a very kind of remote, less involved um, position. So um, I would say even that in my experience, and um, Mike, I don't know what you've seen, has um, really been very different from building to building that I've gone into, kind of what the capabilities are there. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Katie. And also, it doesn't necessarily correlate to the size of the building or the scope even. So if you have, for instance, like a CCRC or that continuing care retirement community with skilled nursing facility and long-term care and assisted living and senior independent living all on the same campus, you would think that maybe those are the facilities that have the additional nursing support, but basically they're trying to, you know, staff their skilled nursing and long-term care um, elements, whether they're on the same campus or even in the same building. So sometimes you'll find that there's, there's not round the clock nursing support, even at those communities. Whereas even at some of the smaller ones that maybe just have a dozen or so patients, you might, uh, have the, the 24 seven nursing support. So again, the size and scope doesn't always, uh, give away what the the level of support or supportive care. And the other thing that I think we're seeing is some, because families really would like to keep their family members in an assisted living type setting with the, the hospitality and the activities and everything, um, that a lot of assisted livings will add on a la carte services or try to encourage the families to hire uh, some private duty or companion services. And that layers on top of what the assisted living is is providing. So even, um, even within the assisted living itself, there can be some, um, some variation in the care. So as Katie said, definitely some, some variation, but it just, you can't always judge a, a book by its cover, so to speak, when it comes to assisted living. Yeah. I will say, and maybe you guys could both, uh, talk about this. I, I think early in my career, the first time I was in an AL, one of the most interesting things was that I had to order home health. I did not know that going in. And um, I was maybe maybe a couple of weeks out of my geriatric fellowship. And that was the first thing. It was like, oh, you have to get a home health nurse if you want us to change this bandage. And I, I did understand that. Can we talk about that just in case there are people who are fresh to this space? Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And I think hopefully something that people will take away from this, because I mean, I do think it is really important to understand um, what these places look like. And also with helping to counsel our um, families and caregivers of our patients that live here about some of these things. I mean, I, I see this a lot where it's kind of a um, I'll say differing level of expectation when someone moves into an assisted living. I think families expect a lot of that thing, those things too, right? They hear there's a nurse here and they don't understand, right? Why we can't be, you know, changing bandages for wounds and some of those sorts of things. And so um, I think there's a lot of confusion even amongst family members about what to expect and um, what to anticipate and how involved sometimes they will need to be in the care of their loved or how involved the person themselves will need to be. Um, so, you know, I think those are really good things. I have often always described assisted living as essentially 
home setting, right? Where you might get some, you know, socialization, some support there, and maybe some support with, you know, some personal care needs and some medication management. Um, But it's really not a medical setting in the sense that a lot of people envision it to be. Mike, anything to add? I think that's a really good summary that uh, that Katie went through. I think a lot of times we we go into an assisted living, we see you know folks pushing around med carts and and thinking that there's there's going to be you know kind of capability very similar to a, a nursing facility or a skilled nursing facility. But again, the, uh, the assisted livings are are not skilled settings in in terms of you know being able to do complex wound care and uh, you know in in most cases things like uh, IVs and and complex medication regimens and things like that. And I think that because there there is such a wide variety of settings and, and some patients are, say, coming to a hospital from a, an assisted living that might be attached to a skilled nursing facility and maybe share the same name of the skilled nursing facility, that even within the, the medical community at our acute care hospitals and emergency rooms, there's often confusion um, over what, what can be accomplished for the assisted living patient. And then when we're trying to discharge patients from the hospital, um, you know, I think there's often some confusion there that we're not sending them to a skilled setting and we need to set up appropriate levels of care. So that's um, that's definitely something that, you know, as Katie said, hopefully can be a takeaway from from today. Katie, Katie, Mike, I'm going to open this. You guys can just answer this for me because I think it's something that we really need to understand what what is the regulatory environment look like for assisted livings? Um, you know, I know that I'm in Florida. Things are different in Florida, but what does it look like state to state? How do how do what do we see as far as regulations? Well, once again, you know, it, it's kind of that edging answer, right? It depends, and it depends on which state you're in. So, one thing for a lot of us who are used to practicing in a post acute long term care setting, where we kind of you know start with CMS and CDC and federal regulations, it kind of trickles down. Um, the assisted livings are, are basically regulated state by state, and each state has its own set of regulations with really wide variation. There are some states that have um, you know pretty strict regulations right down to infection control and um, you know tighter staffing ratios, while some states uh, barely have any regulations at all, and they it's more kind of life safety type things and and everywhere in between. Um, I think that historically and having practiced in assisted livings for a long time and now working with AMDA and and seeing some of the advocacy that's going on and and some of the um, assisted living organizations and and that sort of thing, there's definitely a tension um, in assisted livings, I think, with, with regulation. It's it's kind of almost a love hate type situation. The, the assisted livings do want to offer more medical care, more nursing care, more medical oversight, and I think families are asking for that and wanting that so they can stay in that setting. But with more medical care and um, and more oversight, you know, naturally does come that tendency to want kind of more policy and, and more regulation. And so I think we're we're definitely seeing that that tension kind of heat up and. I think it'll be interesting to see how that does evolve um, over time. And I think there's been some some cases of, you know, patients wandering away from assisted livings that have gotten national attention and, and calls for more regulation. But at the end of the day, you know, assisted living, like I said, trying to promote quality of life and, and hospitality and, and have such a wide range of, you know, four patients to 400 patients, 
I think, you know, regulation needs to be kind of thought of differently as in other settings like a hospital or a skilled nursing facility. So it's interesting. And I'm going to go back to the co-work. I, I think that both you and um, Katie gave um, um, variability. So learning the variability. Um, and I also like the Wild West analogy. <laughs> I guess my next question is, who pays for this then, um, given the variability and the the lack of um, state regulation? Um, maybe, Katie, I'll, I'll turn to you first. Who pays for this? Yeah, so I, this is mainly um, out-of-pocket care for most people. So you can imagine that, um, as Mike was talking about, when um, people are adding levels of care on, right, getting more caregiver support, that this can become expensive very quickly. Um, so, you know, it's uh, patients and or their families that are paying for this type of care uh, out of pocket many times. And I think that's a part of where the the regulation, you know, situation, um, you know, rubber meets the road kind of thing, Diane, too, because the, you know, one, one of the one of the reasons why nursing homes and nursing facilities are, are regulated are that, you know, Medicare and Medicaid, you know, cover different aspects of those. And so once once those payer sources start to get involved, that's where regulation will get involved. So, um, you know, I, I don't see that changing a lot. You'll see some patients um, able to use things like long-term care or VA policies, but it becomes a little tricky with assisted livings because as Katie pointed out before, Yes, there's that kind of two ADL help rule, so to speak, but it's really not hard and fast, and there can definitely be some, um, you know, some differing of opinion. So, for those of us who do a lot of geriatrics, I'm sure we've all filled out those that kind of paperwork is a patient appropriate for assisted living, and it becomes a gray zone. So, the 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 payment situation, I think, is um, is kind of key to to how the how assisted livings are evolving right now. Yeah, I will say in the state of Florida, um, when I was in the ISNIP um, world, we saw an uptick um, with the long-term care Medicaid programs trying to dish, get um, residents discharged from long-term care to ALs because of the cost. So it is interesting. It is definitely um, it's interesting to see the variability from state to state. I wonder... Going back to that hospitality comment that we started off around, um, in thinking about the models of medical care that exist in assisted living, can we talk more about um, that origin of assisted living and where what we're seeing now? Yeah, I think originally when when that model came out, you know, most people who were in assisted livings received their medical care really from their usual primary care physician. And and frankly, when when I started practicing um, in traditional primary care, most of my assisted living patients would actually come see me in the office. And then one of the reasons why I got really interested in assisted living is I realized, you know, they were, it was very difficult for them to, to get to the office. And a lot of them lived in a couple of assisted livings just a few blocks from where I practiced. So I started carving out some time to actually go see them, um, you know, in their, uh, their assisted livings. And, um, you know, as, as Katie said, I think that analogy of it, it's like their home, you know, that, so I always basically kind of treated it like seeing, seeing them on home visits. I would go to their individual apartments and see them and sometimes talk to the, the nursing or clinical staff that might've been there. Um, so that's really, you know, kind of where, where it started, but I think we're definitely seeing, you know, not only more clinicians who do see kind of the benefit of, 
making those home visits to patients to assisted livings themselves, being more proactive with having on-site clinics, whether it be an advanced practitioner or a physician that comes one or more days a week, or kind of encouraging their patients to be uh, you know, seen on on kind of a, a rounding basis. And Diane, it's interesting you bring up the uh, you know the eye snips and the value based care. Um, you know, a lot of you know health plans are are sending nurse practitioners into assisted livings to complete things like annual wellness visits and and close gaps of care because they're kind of in a, a centralized setting. Um, and uh, you know, eye snip programs are kind of you know moving into assisted living type settings because of kind of that proximity of all the patients. But um, so I, I've actually seen it evolve over the last 15 years to kind of that traditional model where they would come see me in the office to more of a home visit or, or on-site clinic type model. But Katie, what were you seeing up, up in Chicago? Um, I think very similarly. Many of them were moving towards having teams who could come on site. And frankly, I think there's a major benefit to being able to do that, right? You know, getting to like really see what the environment is like, talk to the people that are taking care of them, get a good sense about what's happening, medication, just kind of how things are going on a day-to-day basis in a way different level that you can in a, um, in a clinic. Um, and I think along with that, at least in urban areas, which is where I've always worked, I realize this probably might be different in rural settings, but at least the places that I've always gone have often had access to other things in addition to home health, right? We've been able to get access to mobile lab companies and um, some basic radiology, right? Like things like x-rays and EKGs and maybe even ultrasounds to kind of help augment the um the care of of these residents on site katie when you are ordering like a, a x-ray in the al or um labs of the al is it like that same time the same wait period as as we see as skilled nursing facilities yeah definitely um it's it's not a, a rapid turnaround kind of thing and i will say that it even adds a layer of complexity into um, managing all these things, right? I order a lab or a test offsite, and then it goes to an unknown entity that comes and does it, right? And sometimes I'm hunting down results or having family hunt down results. And so um, there, there's kind of even more stuff happening. But yeah, I've never been in a place where these places are coming you know, an hour after I've called to come <laughs> a lab or an x-ray on somebody. Um, so obviously keeping that in mind with the acuity of what you need. Yeah, I think I was at a place where I asked for um, labs as soon as today, as soon as possible. And they said, well, that will be the next day because we only they only come on Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays. It was a very um, eye opening kind of thing. I'm curious. So we have those challenges. What about the pharmacy? You know, I've seen where um People are getting medications from like the Walgreens or CVS, and then some of them are using the long-term care pharmacies. What have you both seen? I've definitely seen both, Diane. Um, I think, again, it kind of depends on maybe the affiliations of the assisted livings as well. Certainly assisted livings who are part of CCRCs will be, um, you know, more likely to use that long-term care pharmacy Um but I, I think a, a lot of them do kind of leave it up to the patients and families if they, you know, normally get their prescriptions at Walgreens or even through some sort of a mail order. 
Um, I have in my experience also seen that cause a lot of, um, confusion because, you know, you're, you're having to send prescriptions to, to multiple places. A lot of times the, the clinicians or, or the primary care provider or their office has to be the one to send the prescriptions in. Um, I was actually at a, an assisted living that was part of a CCRC a few years ago that we had to actually place a limit on the number of pharmacies. You can only use these two or three pharmacies just to kind of make it um, easier on the staff. Um, you know, one statistic uh, that I have seen is a, as much as 87% of patients in assisted living do need help with their medications. We, we do see patients that, you know, want to manage their own medications or have them in their room, at least initially. But, um, you know, at some point during their assisted living stay or journey, um, as, as you'd want to call it, uh, you know, almost 90% of patients do need help with their medications. And that includes you know, the ordering and, and administering and organizing of that. So um, that can be, you know, widely variable depending on on the affiliation the assisted living has. I think, you know, piggybacking on that, Diane, when you talk about the models of medical care, you know, once again, it doesn't necessarily depend on whether you're part of a CCRC or whether you have 400 or 12 patients. Um, it a lot of times depends on, number one, the the clinical staff, which includes, you know, nurses, how many nurses, how many CMTs, those sorts of, of support that you have. And number two, what sort of these ancillary services. So, you know, I appreciate Katie bringing that up because, you know, it's, it's some, some do have access to mobile radiology, mobile lab, um, you know, outside pharmacy. And then the more of those ancillary services you have on a reliable basis, the more. So I would like to really dive deep into some of the personal examples uh, of what it really means to provide medical care in ALs. So Katie, if you could maybe take us through a personal example first. Yeah, thanks. So, I mean, I have really enjoyed working in this setting. I think there's so much benefits um, to especially being able to be on site, as I mentioned, and really kind of getting a good sense of um, what day-to-day life looks like. And also, I think being able to coordinate care with the staff on site too, right? Getting a good sense of what, um, you know, what they can do, what they feel comfortable with, what the barriers that they're seeing are, right? I mean, um, many of the places that I've worked have been really proactive when they feel like things aren't going well and engaging me in those conversations and trying to help, you know, bring in families and, and residents and really think about what's going on. So I think there's a lot of benefit to this. You know, I would say most of the places that I um, have worked in are larger um, assisted livings that have had access, you know, probably mainly because I've been in large urban areas to a lot of on-site support. Um, so a lot of care happening um, in the building itself, um, which has been, you know, really great. Um, and I'd say a mix of kind of that memory care and traditional assisted living um, are many of the that that I've worked in. So I think it's a really rewarding, uh, rewarding setting to work in um, and especially being able to be there on site. You know, I think my hope is always that I can educate people about what this looks like. You know, I, I am thinking back to what Mike said about how we as physicians are often asked um, to 
fill out these paper, this paperwork for people about whether they're, you know, okay to live in assisted living, right? And I mean, how many of us truly understand <laughs> what that setting looks like, right? So how can we answer those questions when this whole world is very, um, I think, nebulous to a lot of people who've never really been in there? Um, so, you know, just again, using my experience to educate families and, um, and hopefully help provide the best care in this setting has been a really rewarding part of working here. Thank you for that, Katie. Thank you for sharing that. Mike, anything to share on personal um, examples or the journey? Yeah, for me, um, well, a couple of things. Obviously, I mean, hopefully it's obvious, you know, through this conversation how how much I enjoy working in the assisted living setting and, and how important I think it is. And, you know, when I started getting more active in AMDA a few years ago, I, I, I had to choose, you know, what which committee do I want to get involved with? And really without hesitation, it was assisted living because um, it is something that that not only I personally enjoy, but I think is kind of, I'm hoping becomes more of the future of, of senior care because there's, there's definitely a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of challenges, but there's a lot of opportunity in that space. For me, um, especially taking care of a senior population, um, you know, as I told you, I've kind of evolved from your traditional family practice doctor that was seeing patients in the office and the hospital and then started kind of dabbling in nursing homes and then assisted livings and have basically transitioned to a full-time post-acute long-term care and assisted living uh, provider, you know, in the last few years. And one of the reasons for that is one of the things I always enjoyed the most uh, were, were making house calls and home visits. But just given the whole complexity of of medicine and, and primary care these days, the, that was something I really had to put a lot of effort in to do. I had to do it either on my lunch hour or after after clinic hours or on the weekend because it just wasn't something that you know I could take all the time that I felt that I needed. But then as I started working in assisted living facilities, I, f- I felt like I, I was really truly doing that old-fashioned house call. Um, and I was able to do multiple of those you know, at one time. And and then it kind of took off from there. But um, so when, when, when I practice in assisted livings, I personally prefer to, to go into their apartments and, you know, talk to the nursing staff kind of on the side and, and not necessarily do it in a clinic space, although there's certainly nothing wrong with with that as well. But for me, it's that, um, you know, that that kind of feeling of being able to to do the house calls in a um, in a reasonable way. And then, like Katie said, too, uh, I think it's important to have clinicians that really kind of understand the space, understand the the opportunities and possibilities for patients in assisted living, but also the limitations. So to me, having those conversations with with patients and families of, you know, here's what we really need to do if you if your goal is to stay here in this setting, these are the things we need to do. These are the things we need to consider. These are the things we need to monitor. And then to kind of serve as a liaison with the the clinical staff and, and even the administrative staff at the assisted livings of how can we kind of work together to to meet this 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 patient's needs or goals because really there's not a lot of clinicians out there I think that fully understand you know what's needed and to some degree you have to get to get to know your community uh, the assisted living community as well. Katie and Mike, I I really truly thank you for your passion and the time you've taken with. Um, 
with us today to talk about this topic. Um, I feel like, and I know we've only touched the surface, uh, there's so much more to talk about. And I, I've already, if anyone's listening, I've already got Katie and um, Mike to commit to talking about transitions of care and challenges in the assisted living, as well as palliative care and goals of care and assisted living, thinking of more topics. So look for those um, podcasts to come out in the near future. And Mike, I know you are going to be doing a presentation or there's going to be a two-part presentation from the assisted living committee at our post-acute long-term care uh, conference in San Antonio this year. Do you want to mention anything about that? Yeah, thanks, Diane. We have a two-hour session, you know, put on by some members of our assisted living committee, and uh, the the kind of overall focus will be, um, you know, common challenges in assisted living and and how to manage them is really the 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 name of our session. But we'll be talking about models of medical care and uh, what how to manage acute medical conditions um, in an assisted living setting, and then also looking at some of the challenges of transitions of care and communicating with patients and families. And um, like I say, all of the uh, panelists, so to speak, that that will be in that session, we've all been practicing in assisted living settings for many years. So we uh, hope to see you there. I believe it's uh, one of the later sessions on the Sunday afternoon at the conference. Thank you both. Thank you. And um, we will be talking with you soon. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.